Father, we thank you for this time you've given us today. We thank you that you care for us so much, uh, so much so you've demonstrate and demonstrate that love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we thank you for your concern and your love and your mercy and your kindness towards us. And Father, I thank you that you desire us to uh, trust you, to rely on you, to obey you, and you give us your word and your spirit to enable us to do so. So I pray you would work in our hearts as we look in your word to help us to become more and more like your son, Jesus. So we thank you for this time, and it's in his precious name we pray. Well, as you know, this life is full of many troubles and trials and problems. And and as we look at things going on around us, we see uh, uh, the wickedness of mankind seemingly uh, uh, becoming exponentially greater. Uh, we, we see so much on the media we have these days, on our phones and TVs and all the stuff. We see uh, it just in real time, so much more, 24-7, all the wickedness and the worldliness of this world just pumped into our hearts and minds. And we can have uh, really bad attitudes towards those who are wicked uh, and not have a Christ-like attitude, which desires all men to be saved. We know that Christ came first and foremost to save. He came in grace, but we know he'll come back in judgment for those who reject his grace. And so with that in mind, as we look at the difficulties around us, we look at the people around us, which we, we don't like, to be honest at times. We don't like their sin. We don't like the things they do. We don't like evil. We don't like that. So it can become discouraging, and our hearts can become hardened towards them and not have the heart of our Lord, which is, as we will see, a heart of compassion, a heart of compassion and a desire for all men to come to repentance. And so with that in mind, we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Jonah for a couple weeks. And so you turn your Bibles to uh, the book of Jonah. Today we're going to have a overview and uh, go through a lot of the context, which will help us in our study of this Book. So would you turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Now what do you think of when you think of the book of Jonah? You know, obviously for uh, many people, including non-believers, the, the first thing they say about Jonah is the big fish. That's what people think of. They think of the big fish, the, uh, the incredible story of a man swallowed by a, by a whale. And uh, yet, unfortunately, because of many uh, well-meaning but maybe mis guided believers who have tried to teach younger children, they have reduced the story to just a whale tale or a whale story, uh, biblically in a sense. And we can miss the reality of all the incredible instruction that God gives us through the life of Jonah in the book of Jonah. Now, as we're going to see, this is much more uh, than just a whale tale or a, a story about a big fish. It has to do with the reality that we, uh, like Jonah, are so unlike God at times, and God wants us to be like him. That's his desire, that we are conformed to the image of his son. And he will stop at nothing to bring that about in the lives of his true children. So again, turn to the book of Jonah. And uh, today I want to give an overview of the entire book. 
Uh, first of all, I want to just share briefly the historical context. It's important, but it's not the most important thing. The word's the most important thing, but I want to share that. Secondly, we want to take a brief jaunt through the book, walk through each portion. It's a short book. You could read it in a couple minutes. I want to take a brief jaunt and kind of look at some of the big picture of it. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at the person of Jonah. And then next week, we'll begin looking at the text specifically. So what do we have here? What do we have in this book, in the context, first of all? Well, as I've mentioned, uh, there are many people who have viewpoints of this book that it is just a fanciful tale, and uh, you have those people on the History Channel and you know PBS who say it's impossible that this could happen, and all those things, and you have the uh, the dead denominations saying, well, yes, it's true, but it's not true. It's just a story to show us bigger truths, you know, or whatever it might be. But the reality is, this is absolutely true. And we see in Scripture that Jonah is verified, and this true story is absolutely, absolutely true. Now, with that in mind, we know even in the beginning of the text, it shows and speaks as though it is not a uh, parable or a, uh, or, 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 a, or figurative at all. It's pretty straightforward. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it, it went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now this doesn't sound like here the parable of this or that. This is a, a, a historical summary by the inspired writer, inspired by the Spirit of God. And it says here, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is a standard phrase used throughout the scriptures to speak of God's word coming to his prophets, God speaking to them, and then the prophets to speak uh, for him. Indeed, we see it is not a, a an allegory or a parable just from the text itself. But we also see the historicity of Jonah also in other places of Scripture. Second Kings chapter 14. Turn there, Second Kings chapter 14. Second Kings 14. And this is speaking of uh, Jeroboam II uh, that I'm going to read. We'll look at it a little more in depth later because this is the king, the northern king who was in power during the time of Jonah's uh, ministry to, to himself and then to, to the Lord, as we'll say. Um, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 24. And he, that's speaking of Jeroboam II, uh, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, that the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-Hefer. He's a real prophet. He's a real prophet who spoke and served the Lord, and it was called, as we'll see here, his servant, the servant of the Lord. And then we've had some of this read earlier, but turn to the book of Matthew. The Lord Jesus himself attests to the historicity of Jonah. The Lord Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. 
Well, that really wasn't what they wanted. They wanted to trick him. They wanted to kill him, actually, at this point. And he said, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to, to, to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, he's saying that's a fact, uh, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's saying, hey, these men of Nineveh who repented, they're going to stand up and condemn this generation because they repented at the actual preaching of Jonah. This is a true story. Later on in Matthew 16, he talks about the evil, adulterous generation Jesus speaks of. He says, nothing will be given but the sign of Jonah. Look at uh, Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, verse 29. And the crowds were increasing, and he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks a sign. Yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man to this, be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And he's speaking of himself, by the way. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Very interesting. Gives you a little insight into judgment too, by the way. And condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Lord Jesus himself attests to the historicity of the book of Jonah. So if anyone says it's not true, they are lying. They are lying. The word of God says very clearly this is historical, that this actually happened. The reality is, if you hear some biblical scholar says, well, it's just an allegory, it's just a story, whatever it might be, they are lying. They are lying. It is not true what they are saying. And it is an evidence that something's very, very wrong in their heart. And if you do not believe that this is true after reading it, after we look at it, if we see in Scripture, then there's something very wrong in your heart. The Lord Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. You see, if you are his sheep, if you are his child, you've been changed. You've been given the spirit of God. You now have the ability to understand the word of God. It didn't make sense before. It was foolishness, but now you can understand it. And so if you're his his sheep, you're going to hear it. You're going to go, yes, that's true. It's true. You're going to believe it. In 1 John, uh, John makes it so clear that you can know who is of God and who isn't based on their reception of the apostles and thus their word. 1 John chapter 4, verse 6, he says, We, speaking to the apostles, are from God, and he who knows God listens to us. If you know the Lord, you're going to hear his word. You're going to understand it. You're going to believe it. He was not from God, does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So you know the spirit of error when you hear those people on TV who say they're biblical scholars. They say, well, we don't know if this is true or not. That's the spirit of error. It is absolutely true. Absolutely true. 
So with that in mind, the historicity of it confirmed through the Lord Jesus himself. We need to remember that everything that is spoken in there is absolutely true. Now, yes, in Scripture there are figures and there are metaphors at times, but they are clearly identified in the context, and Jonah is not such. It is a historical account. So with that in mind, let's take a look at what was going on at the time of Israel, in, the, in, in Israel at Jonah's time, and then we'll look at what was going on in Nineveh in Jonah's time. Now at this point, I want to give you an overview of Scripture to bring us up to the point of uh, Jonah. In Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. We'll start there, right? Um, God created Adam and Eve in his own image, and they were blessed. But Adam sinned, disobeying God, listening to the voice of his deceived wife. And from his sin, sin entered into the human race, and man lost his blessing with the living God and lives now in the midst of sin and a cursed world. But God always had a plan to redeem and restore the human race. It would be through Eve's seed that, as we see, Jesus Christ, that Satan and sin would be crushed forever. And indeed, in Genesis, we see this plan beginning to take shape as God called Abraham and made an everlasting covenant with him, revealing even in that the gospel, that through his seed or his descendant, all the nations should be blessed. All the nations should be blessed. And so at that point, we see, and we see the scripture begin to follow and share his descendants. We have Isaac, then Jacob renamed to Israel. And we see the nation of Israel born from his sons. Uh, then God sovereignly fulfills his word to Abraham, bringing Jacob and Joseph's brothers to Egypt, where they would multiply and be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. And so at that point, we see in 1445 BC, I'll give you a timeline here, uh, after 400 or so years of oppression, we have the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt. And then God made a covenant, a conditional covenant with them in Sinai, uh, giving them the law. And then there were 40 years in the wilderness because of their, their disbelief. We see that at Kedesh Barnea. They didn't believe what the Lord said. They didn't believe his promises that they would take the land. And God had had enough. And he had that generation, evil uh, generation, die out in the wilderness. Then in 1405 B.C., on the plains of Moab, we have Moses uh, sharing the law again. He restates the law. Deutero to Namas law. He restates it again. We have what we see in Deuteronomy. And in chapters 28 through 30, we have God declaring the blessings and cursings to this covenant community of Jews, to Israel. That if they obeyed, they would be blessed. If they disobeyed, they would be cursed. And within those cursings was the promise of God's discipline and, and a horrible exile for their disobedience if they continued down that road. And that was the rallying cry of, rallying cry of the pre-exilic prophets, the prophets that spoke before the exile. Repent, or you will be judged. Repent, or you will be judged. And so after Moses died, Joshua was commissioned by the Lord and led the 45-year conquest of the land. It's here that we see Israel did not fully obey the Lord. Uh, they did not drive out all the inhabitants of the land completely. And then judges revealed that that sin led to an ever-spiraling sinfulness of the nation where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Then around 1095 B.C., 1 Samuel chapter 8 reveals that the sin continued as Israel demanded a king. Rather than having the Lord as their king, they wanted to be like the other nations, and they demanded a king, and yes, God gave them a king. He gave them Saul. 
And then from Saul, uh, after Saul, this would be this would be the beginning of the kingdom period of 480 years. And so after Saul, we see that David would follow him, and God would make an everlasting covenant with David. Second Samuel 7, that you and your house, your kingdom, shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That covenant that would, that would bring forth and, and reveal that Christ in the line of Abraham, uh, and of Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then here David, we would have in his line one who sits on the throne forever and ever. Now David's son Solomon became king, and he built a splendid house for the Lord, the temple. And yet Solomon sinned and went after many women and followed their gods, First King chapter 11. And because of his sin, the kingdom was divided, 931 B.C. North and south, Israel and Judah, ten northern tribes, two southern tribes, First Kings 11, two kingdoms. And then scripture reveals that every one of the kings in the northern kingdom were wicked, and the majority of the kings in the southern kingdom were wicked. And so within that, uh, scripture reveals that at the time of Jonah, it was during this northern king's reign of Jeroboam II, which was 793 B.C. to 758 B.C., and we have that recorded in 2 Kings chapter 14, uh, verses 23 to 29. So it's important to recognize that everything that is happening to Jonah and in the book of Jonah is about a generation away from when God would bring forth the Assyrians, who are the Ninevites, to pour out his judgment and discipline upon the northern kingdom. And indeed, the prophets continued to warn uh, of the impending doom. And in 722 B.C., according to God's promise of judgment, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity. And that was just about a generation after what we see in the book of Jonah. So that's what's going on during that time. And indeed, we see, we saw in our study of the book of, of Ezekiel, if you're with us, that beginning in 605 B.C., there were three sieges of the southern kingdom of Jerusalem. And in 586 B.C., the destruction of Jerusalem and Jerusalem and the southern kingdom was exiled. So God fully brought about his discipline upon the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. Now, with that in mind, the Lord had been very displeased with Israel. He'd been displeased for a long time. Actually, if you know from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 20, the Lord was displeased with Israel while they were in Egypt, and he was ready to destroy them, but he did not do so for his namesake. He was displeased with them in the wilderness, ready to destroy them, but he did not do so for his namesake. He was displeased with them while they were in the land, but he did not do so for his namesake. So Israel was incredibly disobedient, incredibly wicked. There were very few true believers following the Lord. And this is at the time that Jonah is on the scene, and he is a prophet to the northern kingdom. And I read that portion earlier in Second Kings chapter 14. And God was pretty gracious that even through God, his prophecy, he brought about an expansion of the borders temporarily during that time through the prophecy of Jonah being fulfilled. Second Kings chapter 14, we have it in 23 through 29. So the days of the northern kingdom were dark. Everything was evil. Good was evil. Evil was good. Hey, we see that, don't we, right? Um, and it caught, and the people were led into sin by their leaders. It was terrible. 
And so God was gracious, not destroying them, but he was also going to show them where their hearts were because all the while they would still be claiming the Lord as their God. How about that? A very wicked group of people claiming the Lord as their God. And so during this time, about a generation away before God would bring that ultimate discipline, we have the book of Jonah. That's Israel. What's going, what's going on with Israel? What about with Nineveh? Nineveh. We're going to see them in this book. Nineveh, the Ninevites. Well, they were a wicked, violent people on the road to God's judgment also. They were on the road also. In Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 to 12, uh, God reveals through his word that Nineveh was originally built by Nimrod. That same passage reveals that Nimrod was the great-grandson of Noah. He was a mighty warrior and evidently a wicked man. And in verse 10 of chapter 10 of Genesis, it says that this, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So subsequently, I believe Nimrod would be the leader of the rebellion of mankind against God, building the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. And in Micah chapter 5, 8, the Assyrian Empire, the Ninevites, are referred to as the land of Nimrod. The land of Nimrod. That's where this comes from. Now, the ruins of Nineveh are around the modern Iraqi town of Mansul. And as we are going to see in this book, this city at that time was a great city. It was a large city. It was a three-day walk to get through the city. And later on in the end of the book of Jonah, the Lord reveals that there's 120,000 infants and children, which would reveal there's probably over a half a million people in this, in this great city. And so at this point, we see the Ninevites were in this great city. It was the, and this, this, uh, this capital Nineveh was actually the capital of Assyria. And Assyria at this time was the superpower of the time. And God would always use the superpowers to discipline his people, by the way. He would use the ones that are strong to discipline his people. We see that here with Nineveh. Well, what kind of people were they? What kind of people did Jonah know about? Who were they? What did he know about them? Well, history, historians have noted that the Assyrians were brutal. They were brutal people. They were excessively brutal towards their enemies, and Israel being one of their main enemies, one of their main enemies. And so along with the account of history, we also have later on uh, an account of, the, of, of, the, of Assyria and the Ninevites later on in Nahum chapter 3. Now, this gives us an idea of what they are like. You can turn to Nahum chapter 3. Now, this is later on, but it gives us an idea of what they're like. This is a generation after Jonah, so things, you know, there was, an, there was a generation that repented, but they went right back to their old, their old ways, by the way. Doesn't that happen? Faith doesn't pass genetically, by the way. Uh, it comes through personal repentance in faith in the living God, Lord Jesus Christ. Nahum chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Was that Washington? No, that's not. That's a <laughs> well, you see the wickedness, right? But here, this is really, really poured out. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, uh, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. 
Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will show to the nations your nakedness and your kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you, and I will make you vile, and I will set you up as a spectacle, and it will come about that all who see you will shrink away from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. So we're going to see that, you know, God's view of Nineveh here is, 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 is clearly revealed about their wickedness and then what he's going to do to judge them. But we tend to step into that second part where we start to hate them and we think we should judge them or whatever it might be. Rather than realize God is a compassionate God and he offers the gospel before judgment. And we're going to see Nona, Nona, Noah had a not Noah. <laughs> We're going to see Jonah had a wrong view of them. So Nineveh was a bloody city full of lies, like Satan, liar and a murderer, John chapter 8. And even in the book of Jonah, the Lord declares, uh, verse 1, uh, Arise and go to Nineveh, verse 2, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. They're wicked. They're wicked. And even when the Ninevites repent, they declare their wickedness too. They actually acknowledge it. Look in chapter 3 of Jonah. Look in chapter 3 of Jonah. Let's look at verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Isn't that amazing? And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them, when the word of the reached, Lord, word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, flock, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man or beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call upon call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. He knew exactly what the sin was, by the way. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The Ninevites were a wicked, violent people, and they were the enemy of Israel. And certainly God would pour out his judgment upon them, as we saw in Nahum. But before that, God would graciously reveal his compassion by sending a servant to declare to them that they must repent because judgment is coming, that they must, uh, that they're going to be judged. So at this point, what I want to do now with that uh, historical background is if you turn to the back of your outlines, or actually to the, to the, I want to go through, or the, actually no, it's the front of your outline, sorry. I want to go through just a run through, and you'll see, it's in the front of the back. It says, the disobedient, unconcerned prophet is this one. Do you see that part? Okay, turn to that, and I want to just briefly just walk through the context of Jonah, and then next time we'll go through individually at each little part and look at it, and then we'll finish up looking at Jonah's character from the book of Jonah. So notice, uh, chapter 1, we have this disobedient, unconcerned prodigal prophet being disciplined by God. 
Now God calls Jonah to preach, and Jonah disobeys and flees. The word of the Lord, verse 1, chapter 1, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah, remember that, but Jonah, but Jonah uh, arose, rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. To, to, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah disobeys, and he flees, okay? And then how does God respond to his disobedience? Verse 4, And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. This is bad. We'll see this. It's bad. And then notice Jonah's disobedience uh, and his apathy brings collateral damage. By the way, when you're a believer and you're disobedient, you're messing with your families. You're messing with people around you, your church. There is collateral damage when you are disobedient, when you do not trust the Lord and obey him. Look at verse four, or verse, verse 5. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hole of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we will learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lot, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Uh-oh. Right? Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? How could you do this? So they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may become calm by, for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea, and the sea will become calm for you, for I know it is on account of me this great storm has come upon you. He even knows it's his fault, Right? And he doesn't care about himself or these other people. He doesn't care. And they're about to die. But God uses this calamity to bring about salvation of these Phoenician, as we'll see, sailors. And it says here, However, the men rowed desperately, verse 13, to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stronger. They weren't going to throw them over right away. These guys were, had more compassion than Jonah had, by the way. And he says here, the Lord says through the word, then they called upon the Lord. Hey, earlier they were calling upon their gods. Now they're calling upon the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us for the O Lord hath done as thou hast pleased. So they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea and the sea stopped raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. That's amazing. So Jonah is thrown overboard, and what happens? Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And then we see the Lord 
uh, disciplines this prodigal prophet all the way to the point of death. And then Jonah prays, and the, the, the Lord saves him. Look at chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, and his Lord his God, from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the death of Sheol. Thou dost hear my voice, for thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and thy breakers, all thy breakers and pillows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards thy holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head, and I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were around me forever. But thou hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. Thou hast regard Those who regard vain idols forsake thy faithful, their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited up Jonah onto dry land. Isn't that great? Jonah has, has seemingly repented, at least in this part. He has. He's, he's, his heart, he has prayed. He has acknowledged that uh, it's about him and his sin. And so the corrected prophet now turns and obeys the Lord, but we're going to see reluctantly. He obeys. He does obey. Uh, look at uh, verse chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the, the second time. The Lord's reminding us, here it comes again. Uh, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. There you go, Jonah. Here's what I want you to do. You didn't do it before? Let's do it. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And we read this before, but let's take a look at the Ninevites' response. This is amazing. They, they believe and they humbly uh, repent. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. There you go. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. This is the generation, by the way, that will rise up and declare the generation that rejected Christ in the judgment. We'll speak of them. They're going to rise up in the judgment. They're going to, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And something greater was there, and that generation around Christ did not repent. They're going to be, in a sense, witnesses, in a sense, at the judgment. And so he says here, a little side note there. And so he says here, um, uh, when the, from the from Sackoff, from the greatest to the least of them, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, set aside, laid aside his robe, from him, covered himself with sackcloth and on and sat on ashes, and he issued the proclamation a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and the nobles and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing, do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth sackcloth, and let men call upon God earnestly, that he may turn from that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. That's repentance. 
That's repentance. They understood. This is incredible. These Ninevites, this wicked city, they repent. And so what happens? God relents of his wrath. Look at verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now let me um, sidetrack for a second here. God declares to all men everywhere that all should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through the man Jesus having furnished proof by raising him from the dead. He declares to all men to repent. There is judgment coming for sin. There is judgment coming. Every deed, every word, every deed is going to be judged. And God wants you to repent of your sin, to trust in Christ, to be forgiven. And he will relent of that judgment that he has declared will come. The judgment is coming. But if you repent and trust in Christ, he will relent of that judgment like he did with the Ninevites. So then God relented of his wrath, and uh, he will relent of his wrath if you trust in Christ, because his wrath was poured out on him instead. So then what's Jonah's response? Praising God, jumping for joy at the repentance of the Ninevites. He's so happy. Is that what goes on here? No, this depressed, uh, angry, praying prophet needs to be taught a lesson. Look at his response. Verse chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. What greatly displeased him? The repentance of the Ninevites. That God wouldn't pour his judgment on them. That God relented of his judgment. Wow, and he prayed. Look at this. He's messed up. Now, he did repent back in chapter 2 when he was in the whale, right? Isn't this like us? We repent, but we're not fully there yet at times. There's other things God has to weed out that we would repent of those things too. He says, he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, and you can almost add the whining in here, right? Please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew, now listen to this, I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God. He knew God's character. And so he didn't want to repent because he knew God would relent, right? So he split. Slow to anger and abandon in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Oh boy, Jonah's got a big problem here. So we're going to take a look at it much more in depth when we get there. But uh, because God didn't pour out his wrath on the Ninevites, Jonah's angry. Because God, because he knew that God's character was compassionate and forgiving and would relent of evil, he is depressed, as we'll see. And so he says, therefore, take my life. He says, death is better to me than life. Wow. Jonah is so unlike God. He is so, And we are like this at times, too. We need to realize we are so unlike God in our response to things. We can do the right thing after being spanked by God, and then we go right to the wrong thing. And God has to spank a little more. And so here, uh, Jonah is, is, is amazingly so unlike God. Well, how about you and I? We are unlike God at times. We need to see it so that we would repent of it, we relent of it when we are like this. So now, notice, apart from God's intervention, this anger and selfishness always leads to death. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is far better to me than life. Why don't counselors use this passage to help people in their depression and anger? We're gonna, we sh- they should, 
Biblical counselor says, we'll see. And what? And the Lord said, do you have any good reason to be angry? Our Lord's so gracious. He's so gracious. Jonah, do you have any good reason to be angry? And obviously there's no answer to that, right? There's no answer to that, right? Then Jonah, he just stormed off, went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. He still thinks maybe God will blow it up in 40 days. He is so stubborn. So unlike God. And notice, but amazingly, uh, notice what God does. He teaches Jonah, Israel, and us a lesson about compassion which is what we need. And I, I'm concerned that as we see the increasing wickedness of our society, our compassion is going to go out the window. Let God judge them. God judges the world. We need to have compassion like the Lord for those who are lost, that they might be saved. It doesn't mean we don't say, you need to repent if that opportunity comes up. But we need to not allow our disdain for the wickedness of those who don't know Christ cause us not to be compassionate towards them. So then notice what the Lord does. So then the Lord God appointed a plant. I love this. And it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. You know, God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? You know, this is amazing. But God appointed a worm. Uh, when A worm when, when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. And it came about that the sun came up upon that God, excuse me, that it came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind. He pointed a plant, he pointed a worm, now a scorching east wind. And it says here, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better than life to me. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about this plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. <laughs> We're like this, folks. We need to realize we are like this at times, and God wants to help us see ourselves rightly so that we would not be like this. Well, he's messed up. Anger driven by self-centeredness is deadly. You know, if you, are, if you don't deal with anger and your self-centeredness, you're going to be at this end of depression. And it's deadly, by the way. And so he says, do you have good reason? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, verse 10, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, for which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should not I have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120 persons, thousand persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Shouldn't I have compassion? Uh, th those who don't know their right and left hand, those are small children. They don't understand, right? Obviously, there's many, many, many people. So uh, the book of Jonah ends with a question. A question that reveals the great compassion of our God and the incredible lack of compassion of his prophet Jonah towards those in Nineveh. And quite possibly, this is a rebuke of the nation of Israel who was so self-righteous about their righteousness in a sense, and it was a, it was a self-righteousness, and yet they were walking in sin on their way to judgment. 
So then, that's a brief overview of the book, and there's so many applications. I mean, as we go through it, it's not a, just a fish story. There's so much more than that, and hopefully we'll be able to learn and grow from what we see there. And so now let's kind of finish up taking a look at what we see about the man Jonah, about the man Jonah, and then next week we'll get into the text. I believe we're going to see that he is so unlike God and maybe like us. We know that Jonah pointed it out in 2 Kings 14 already that Jonah lived back during the time of King Jeroboam II at the northern kingdom, and Jonah was a prophet of God to the northern kingdom. We know also from that Second Kings passage that he was of Gath Hefer. Now, if you look on a map, you would see that's just a little bit north of Nazareth in the Galilee region, which means, by the way, the Pharisees of Jesus' day were wrong when they said, you are not also from Galilee to Jesus. Search and see that no prophet rises out of Galilee. Well, Jonah did. They were wrong there, weren't they? Jonah certainly did. Uh, but what else do we know about him? Notice he knows, we've seen it, he knows the Lord. He knows his character. He prays to the Lord. And we have this, uh, he says, I am to the sailors, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. I'm a, I fear the Lord. I fear the real Lord. And in chapter 2, we see that prayer. He prayed to the Lord, verse 2, Please, Lord, was not what this said when I was in my own country, Chapter 4, excuse me, he prays. Uh, and he understands God's character in this prayer. We saw this. He says, For I know, the end of verse uh, 2, that uh, thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I know your character. Gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. You're one who forgives. You relent. I knew that. That's why I got angry. <laughs> That's why, you know, so he knows about the Lord. But there's something terribly, terribly wrong in Jonah's life. We saw that he was disobedient. The Lord told him to go to Nineveh, but Jonah fled to Tarshish. Here we have this phrase, but Jonah. God says things, but Jonah does this. He was a disobedient prophet. And folks, it is dangerous to be disobedient as a believer. It is dangerous. You you will bring danger to yourself, but you're also going to mess with everyone around you. I guarantee if you're in sin, if you're if you're not confessing sin, we all sin, you're not confessing sin, you're allowing attitudes, whatever it might be, to, to, to reign in your heart, uh, the people around you are not happy. I'll tell you that right now. There's difficulty in your household. And we need to learn that our sin affects others, not just ourselves, but affects others. So Jonah was selfish. He was also very unconcerned about us. He's down on a pillow sleeping, knowing he's just probably thinking, okay, it's going to go under. Okay, he doesn't care about these sailors at all. God cared about him. God saved him, by the way. So he is selfish and unconcerned about others. Uh, when believers are, that's the way non-believers are, but when believers are in sin, that's what happens. Very self-focused, unconcerned about the ramifications to those around. And yet we also see that he responded to discipline. He did in the belly of the fish. He prayed, he acknowledged it, and then he ended up obeying. Obeying, but yet, as we saw, reluctantly. But we also saw within that reluctant obedience, he became displeased, angered, depressed and suicidal okay 
Jonah's messed up. He's messed up. And folks, we're going to see that anger is a very dangerous emotion. Very dangerous for believers. We are not to allow the sun to even go down on our alongside anger, paragismus. If you are irritated at someone and you go to bed, you just gave Satan a place, and that's why you're messed up towards them and towards others. Don't do it. Jonah was messed up, but God didn't give up on him. God did not give up on him. But Jonah was also, as we saw, stubborn. He goes back out and sits to see if the city's going to be blown up. Right? He's stiff-necked. He's like Israel. He's like Israel. And also, as we saw, and I mentioned this before, he had many deadly thoughts. Chapter 4, verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. That's satanic. That's evil. Okay? And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? And that's the thing you should be asking yourself next time those thoughts you're tempted with it. Do you have good reason to be angry? Chapter eight, chapter 4, verse 8. And it came about when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die. Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Jonah, God knew why he was angry. He was angry about the plant. And he was angry enough to die. And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Jonah's messed up. Folks, don't mess with anger. Confess it. Kids, when you get angry, confess it. Don't give Satan a place. Anger is a very dangerous uh, emotion and then a sin if we don't give it over to the Lord. If it's righteous, we don't give it over. It's sin. And then there's also just straight-out sinful anger like we see here with Jonah. And lastly, we see he lacked true compassion. He had compassion on a plant that came up and died. He had no compassion for a city that had 120,000 children that don't know the left from their right and many animals, let alone the adults who were these running around doing wicked things who had repented, who had repented. He had a lack of compassion. The Lord said, verse 10, there, the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, chapter 4, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? So there you go. Jonah is the world's worst missionary. He is. You see that. And yet God is gracious. God is gracious because, as we're going to see, uh, it's apparent that I believe Jonah repented because God would call him his servant Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14. And there are not many people in the Old Testament that the Lord would say, my servant, to. Besides Nebuchadnezzar, who was an unwitting servant used by the Lord to bring about his wrath, we see Job being called his servant, Jacob, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, David, Ahijah, Elijah, Isaiah, Hezekiah, Zerubbabel, Israel being called that, and Jesus himself, and Jonah being called his servant or my servant. And I also believe one evidence that Jonah did repent, and we'll look at this more so, is that obviously this book is autobiographical that he is writing what happened, that he is sharing what happened, which is an evidence that he 
repented, I believe. So then what can we gather from this introduction? Well, first of all, if you don't believe it's true, then you have a spiritual problem. Because Jesus said it is, and Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And the reason why we don't believe if scripture is true is because we don't have the spirit of God before we're saved. We're, we are separated from God. And if you are separated from God, you're on your way to judgment. But God is a gracious God who declares to all men everywhere that all should repent because he's fixed a day in which he's going to judge. And the Lord Jesus is the judge and he's furnished proof by raising him from the dead. So acknowledge your sin and go to God, confess it, trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then for us, what can we gather? Well, you can willingly and joyfully and obediently serve the Lord now, and you'll receive the temporal blessing of a right relationship with him, maybe some difficulties and reward in heaven. Or you can go the difficult road of discipline. You can go the hard way. Jonah went the hard way, and he was disciplined almost to the point of death, as we will see. And we see in Second Corinthians chapter, First Corinthians chapter 11, that there are some believers that are disciplined to death, that they would not be judged with the world. You can go the easy way, or you can go the hard way. And God is a gracious God who disciplines his children. Are you willing to serve him where and whenever and however he desires? Or do you have a plan for your own life? Are you willing to serve him wholeheartedly, willing to do whatever he wants you to do, wherever he wants you to go? Are you willing to do that? And then it's also my prayer that those of us who want to follow the Lord, who fail but confess, who keep short accounts, uh, desiring to be obedient, that the Lord might use this book to reveal and convict us of hidden areas that we were not aware of, give us a greater compassion for those who are going to be judged or on their way to judgment, hopefully delivered, a greater compassion uh, exhibited by us obeying the Lord and trusting him and allowing him to work through us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this introduction to this book. And I do pray, Lord God, that we would become more and more like you that we would learn from your word and your spirit would convict us, that we would have compassion. You desire compassion over sacrifice, Lord. Help us to have your heart towards those who don't know you. Lord, we know that you will judge and that day will come, uh, yet you are a gracious God who relents. And I pray that uh, we would be those who have beautiful feet, who are ready to share the good news of the gospel when you lead us and where you lead us so that people would be saved. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your goodness towards us. I thank you for your faithfulness towards us, Lord God, that in spite of our failures, you are still faithful and that you work to bring about the character of Christ in your people. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.